Right, first of all, thank you very much for the, the invitation to come here. Uh, I think it's been a productive time so far. Um, so today I'm going to talk about um, some of the work we do in our group at York. Our group at York is originally conceived essentially as a computer vision group. So we're really interested in the analysis of images and finding patterns in images. And some of the early work we did involved representing images as graphs. So I've got some examples of that here. Uh, top left-hand corner we have a road network captured actually by an infrared camera and therefore the, the roads show up very well, they're very easy to extract and of course you end up with a, with a road network which you then want to analyse in some way. Uh, on the right-hand side this is a, also a classic computer vision problem. You take the silhouette, the outline of an object, you're interested in its shape, you can reduce that outline to, to a skeleton which is essentially a, uh, a graph or a tree. Down in the bottom left hand uh, corner here, this is an object recognition problem. We capture interesting points on the object, for example, um, feature points, corner points and so on, and we can then use a triangulation to represent those as a graph. So those are the kind of basis of where we started, um, but gradually over the years, personally I've become more and more interested in general analysis of things represented by graphs or networks rather than particularly um, computer vision or image problems. So more recently we're interested in things in the, like in the bottom left hand corner here. So these are chemical structure graphs where the graphs are represented by a set of atoms and the bonds between those atoms and we want to do some kind of analysis on those. These are much more modern data sets that have become interested in. So in recent years, there's been a kind of explosion of data sets that are represented by networks in some way. These are just two examples of a huge range of uh, different types of networks which come from many, many different fields. So protein interaction networks uh, on the left here. Social networks, of course, have become very important after the last 10 years. There are lots of different types of analysis problems that we might want to do on these types of networks. But these types of networks, this data is very challenging, not simply because it's quite complicated, but also because of the huge scale of some of these things. So protein interaction networks can have many thousands of vertices in. Of course, social networks can be virtually as large as you like, sometimes millions, uh, millions of nodes in them. Okay, so when I talk about networks, what am I talking about really? So a network really consists of, of two elements. The first is a set of vertices and generally when they're representing some data set, these vertices represent the parts or the elements or the objects in some sense, uh, the kind of uh, atomic things which are in your representation. And then there's a set of edges, so edges are pairwise relationships between those parts. So where we see an edge in our network, that represents the fact there's some kind of interaction or relationship between those two, uh, two parts of the, the uh, data that we're interested in. That edge can represent many different types of relationships depending on the data. So it's not just confined to one thing. We can have edges which simply exist or don't exist. We can put uh, weights on them. We can put all kinds of measurements on them. In the problems we're interested in, we're talking about networks where the, the vertices are not really distinguishable from each other. So these vertices, as far as we can tell, all look the same as each other and they're interchangeable if we don't consider what the interactions between them are. So that's true to a greater or lesser extent in some of the data I showed you uh, before in, in, in real networks. But if we can reliably tell one vertex from another, then this isn't really the same kind of problem. It's a much easier problem once you know which vertex is which. 
because then you know which relation is which and you can compare them very easily to each other. So in these networks, information is encoded not in the objects themselves, but in the relationship between the objects. That's the key uh, information that we need to process. And because it's encoded in relationships between pairs of objects, and we don't know the identity of each of the objects, this becomes a difficult problem in terms of, uh, of analysis and doing various types of information gathering on these networks. Okay, so there are many different types of questions that we might be interested to ask about networks. These are just some of them. Um, but there are many different types of data gathering tasks uh, that we might want to do. But the, some of the ones that we're uh, personally interested in in our group are, first of all, what is the structure of the network? So what does it look like? Is there any kind of regularity? Uh, are there parts to this network? How are those parts connected if there are parts? Can we find groupings? Uh, do the different parts look the same as each other? Or are they non-uniform in some sense? So those questions, they're questions really about one network. So we have some network and we want to extract something from that network. Other questions involve uh, more than one network, usually a pair of networks. So we might ask questions like, are two networks the same as each other? So are they identical? Uh, how similar are they? If they're not identical, we want, might want to have some measurement of how similar or dissimilar these networks are to each other. If we have networks that maybe come from different sources, can we tell that that's true? Are they of different types in some sense? Or do they come from the same source of data, even though they might be different? And finally, if we have a set of networks, can we build some kind of model, maybe a statistical model of those networks, so that we can tell whether new networks come from the same set or so that we can generate new things from the same kind of data? So those questions, those second set of questions, are about comparing networks to each other. So they're slightly different, although related problems. Okay, so networks are structural. So as I already said, it's the arrangement of edges that matter in these networks, not the uh, identity of individual vertices, but how those vertices are connected by edges. If we want to compare the edges, which is what we need to do to extract any meaningful information uh, from the network, then we need to find some kind of way of pairing up these edges so we can compare them to each other. And that means creating some kind of labelling on the network. So a priori, we don't know which of these vertices are which, but if we want to do something useful with a network, then we have to put some kind of labelling on the network. So this is an example of a labelling. So I've got five vertices. I simply label those vertices with numbers one to five, and that gives me an order in which I can use to uh, describe that network. So in what I call a pure network, uh, that's one where we really don't know anything about the identity of the vertices. We have no labelling information at all. And there isn't any intrinsic difference between the vertices. And so it doesn't matter what order I label them. It's the same network. So even if I reorder these, if I order these uh, vertices in a different order like that, we're talking about the same network, but I'm using a different labelling. The labelling doesn't make any difference to the structural properties of the network, which is what we're interested in. So we don't know which labelling we should choose. We don't know which is the best. In particular, if we're comparing two networks, we don't know that we've labelled them in the same way. And since there are n factorial labellings, this is the main difficulty for us in comparing two networks to each other, because we don't know which component is which. So most of the work we do, we uh, generally appeal to matrix representations uh, of networks. So a matrix representation is a matrix in which we label the entries of the matrix by the labels we gave to the vertices. 
So in this example here, I've got the, the same graph from the previous slide. We put a labeling on that graph, and then we create a matrix where uh, the rows and columns are labeled by the uh, indices of the vertices. So then each element of that matrix will correspond either to a vertex or an edge in the graph. So this example I've got here on the right, so this is the uh, Laplacian of the graph. So if I take an element 1, 1 here, this corresponds to this vertex here, and it has an entry which is equal to the degree of that vertex. So for example, 2, 2 here has a 3 because this vertex has degree 3, three edges coming into it. Other elements, element 1, 2 has a minus 1, and that corresponds to there being an edge between uh, vertices 1 and 2, so it corresponds to this edge. So this type of matrix representation encodes all the information about the vertices and the edges that we have in the graph. And so it represents the graph in some sense that we know what the network or graph is based on what's in this matrix. So if I label the network differently, it's the same network, but we're going to record these things in a different order, which means that the columns here and the rows here will appear in a different order if I use a different labeling. And therefore, I'm going to get a different matrix that represents these network, this network. And in fact, this matrix is, uh, these matrices are related to each other by the fact that if I permute the rows with a matrix P and the columns with a matrix P transpose, then I will get a different matrix representation, but of the same network that I had before. So this is a similarity transform, and it relates any matrix representation to any other matrix representation of the same network. And so this is a condition for these two networks to be the same as each other, uh, according to this representation. OK, so one question I might want to ask about two networks, although this is not a very common question that you ask in, in practical data, but you might want to ask, are two networks the same as each other? So you might want to ask the graph isomorphism question. So that means that can we place the vertices in correspondence in such a way that all of the edges in one graph are in correspondence with all of the edges in the other, and all of the non-edges are in correspondence with non-edges in the second graph. And therefore, the graphs are, in some sense, identical to each other. So that's equivalent to this statement here. <coughs> Two networks will be isomorphic if and only if we can find a permutation matrix which turns the matrix representation of one graph into the matrix representation of another graph. And this is, a, this is equivalent to saying that we can reorder the vertices or relabel them in such a way to make the graphs look identical to each other in that matrix representation. So the reason why I bring up graph isomorphism, even though it's not a, a typical problem that you might want to actually um, address on networks, is because it tells us something about how to measure properties of networks. If I take a measurement of my network, I, I want a measurement such that if I apply this permutation matrix to the representation, then the measurement doesn't change. Because for two isomorphic graphs, they should always have the same measurement. And if they don't, then it's not a very good measurement because it depends on the way I label the graph rather than the structure of the graph itself. So any graph measurement or characterization should be invariant to this reordering of how we label the vertices. So that's a very easy thing to do in practice. So for example, if I count the number of vertices in my graph, then it doesn't matter how I label them, there's going to be the same number. And therefore, that's a uh, measurement which we can use to represent the graph. 
course, it's not a very interesting one. We can find many different networks which have the same number of vertices in them but are different from each other. But of course, we can extend that idea in a straightforward way. So we might want to count the number of edges, count the number of triangles, and so on. And we'll get measurements that somehow represent the structure of that graph to some extent. So these things here, these are all examples of network characterizations. So they characterize the network by taking a measurement of it. They don't depend on the way we labeled the network. They only depend on the network structure. And so it doesn't matter what order we write down the vertices in, we'll still get the same measurement. In practice, of course, we're not in really interested in isomorphism. Generally, it's not a problem we address. But what we want to ask is questions like, if we have two similar networks, can we make, take measurements which have similar characteristics? So we want to find measurements which characterize the graph in such a way that if I find the measurements of two similar graphs or networks, then they should have similar characterizations. And if they're very different, they should have very different characterizations. So that's really the tough problem of designing graph characterizations is finding characterizations which are similar when the graphs are similar, but different when they're very different, to guarantee that in all cases. So we want characterizations of networks which are, of course, informative, they tell us something about the structure, but also that we can compute in an easy way. So we need algorithms that don't take too long, even for large graphs, and of course, we should insist that they're invariant to the labeling, so they don't take change if we change the labeling of the graph. Okay, so one of the most interesting set of graph characterizations comes from spectral graph theory. So we can characterize the matrix representation of a graph by looking at its spectrum. So the spectrum of, say, for example, the Laplacian, although you can do this for different matrix representations, the spectrum of the Laplacian gives you a set of numbers that describe the graph in some sense, and the spectrum doesn't change when we permute the matrix. So if I apply a relabeling of the network, then we always end up with the same spectrum. The spectrum of L is equal to the spectrum of P, L, P transpose. And therefore, it's a good characterization of the graphs. So there have been a number of studies actually using the spectrum of the Laplacian matrix and other matrices to characterize graphs. And it turns out to be a relatively effective method. It does have some drawbacks. So one of the drawbacks is that you can have two graphs which are not the same as each other, but still have the same spectrum. So I've got a pair here, uh, an example of that. These two graphs, if we use the adjacency matrix as a representation, then this one here has this spectrum, and this one over here, although it's different, has exactly the same spectrum. Uh, so they're not isomorphic, but they have the same graph characterization uh, in terms of the spectrum. So if we find two graphs that are isomorphic, they will always have the same spectrum, but just because they have the same spectrum doesn't mean they're the same as each other, or even that similar to each other necessarily. Okay, so that, this result that you can get graphs which are, have the same spectrum that are dissimilar is a theoretical result. It's an open question about how much that actually applies in practice. If I take two graphs from a set at random, how likely it is that they might have the same spectrum but actually be different from each other? So we did a study in 2008 to actually try and look at that problem. It's actually a very hard problem to try and solve in theory, but we did some empirical studies and these are the results we got for three different characterizations. So A here, this is the adjacency matrix. Uh, this line here, this is the Laplacian matrix that I talked about before. 
And this one here, this is the signless Laplacian, which is just a slight variation on the Laplacian matrix. So this is the size of the graph. So we've started at four and we've managed to go all the way up to at least some of the graphs of size 13, looking at how many of those graphs have another graph which has the same spectrum. As you can see, for small graphs, the numbers seem to rise. But as we get to larger numbers of graphs, most of these representations actually uh, fall quite rapidly. So if I pick two graphs at random from, say, graphs of size 13, then the fraction of those that have another graph which has the same spectrum is uh, less than 5%. So in practice, it's not such a real problem. Uh, just to give you an idea of the difficulty of actually going any further than this, there's 50 trillion graphs of size 13. And of course, you can see by these error bars that we had to sample those. We couldn't manage to evaluate them all. So it's really an intractable problem to actually look at graphs that get larger and larger. And it's still an open problem about whether no graphs, if you go large enough, no graphs have a co-spectral partner, partner with the same spectrum, or whether they all do. Nobody knows the answer to that question at the moment. Okay, so the spectrum's interesting, but it's a bit limited in the sense we only use a small amount of the information that we have available to us. So to try and go a bit further, we can go along the same lines and we can use uh, a complete eigen decomposition of the graph. Uh, of the matrix representation. So here, if X is some matrix representation, we can form the uh, eigen decomposition. Uh, lambda here will contain the eigenvalues, which are invariant to relabeling, and so a good characterization. But we've also got this information here in the eigenvectors. So the problem with this information is that it's not a good characterization. It does, doesn't stay the same when we relabel the graph. And in fact, what will happen is the components of the, each eigenvector will get changed in order when you change the labeling of the graph. So the components of those eigenvectors are permuted, and we can't use them directly. But what we can do is form uh, composites of those components in such a way that that composite doesn't change as we change the labeling. So we do that using expressions like this. So this thing here, this is an example of a symmetric polynomial. If I have three components, x1, x2, and x3, and I form them into this uh, expression, x1, x2, plus x1, x3, plus x2, x3. If I change the order of 1, 2, and 3, if I permute that order, this expression here doesn't change, even though the order of the labels might change, because it contains all of the different symmetrized products uh, of a pair of labels. So this is just one example. There are a whole family of these types of polynomials which don't change as you change the order of the vertices. And you can use these the values of these to characterize graphs from the components of the eigenvectors of the graph. So we did that in a paper in 2003. Uh, we looked at the, these types of invariants as measurements for characterizing the graph and did various studies looking at separating them. So this is one of the studies we did with shapes. This is using those shape graphs that I talked about at the start. So I've got three different shape classes here. I compute those type of features that I was just talking about, characterizations with the eigenvalues and eigenvectors, and then I can plot them in a space that represents their similarity to each other based on these characterizations, and we end up with three sets, uh, dogs up here, cars down here, and hands over here. You'll see it's not perfect. There are a few kind of rogue cars in the different sets, but we still get a fairly reasonable separation of the different shapes based on these fairly simple uh, characterizations of the graphs. So it turns out that these polynomials actually uh, provide what you could call a complete characterization of the graph. So by that I mean that if I compute all of these things in the right way, 
compute the right set of these things, then I can reconstruct the graph from that set. So if I give you the, um, the spectral features, the uh, characterization, then you can tell me what the graph was. So it's complete in that sense. So because of that, it solves the isomorphism problem for graphs, but only in one particular case, and that's the case where we have simple spectra. So a simple spectrum is one where there's no repeated eigenvalues in my spectrum. So if there are degenerate eigenvalues, then there's more than one possible solution uh, for the eigenvectors, and I therefore don't get a unique characterization of the graph. There's more than one way of characterizing the graph. And so because of that, I can't say that if the two characterizations are the same, they must be the same graph. So while I can reconstruct the graph from the characterization, I can't solve the isomorphism problem unless the graph doesn't have any repeated eigenvalues in the spectrum. So this is, this is just one of a, example of a whole family of different types of characterizations based on similar ideas. So spectral clusters, some work we did in 2002, and then a couple of others, Ihara zeta function and heat kernel trace. These are ones I'm going to talk about later on when I uh, talk about uh, random walk-based characterizations. But they're of a similar type of flavor to uh, these spectral characterizations. So one of the problems of using these um, spectral graph theory-based characterizations is that there isn't a tight coupling to the actual structure of the network. So it's not clear at the moment how things like the spectrum of graph actually relate to its structure in a direct way. So if we're interested in characterizations that actually tell us something about what the structure looks like, we have to go in a slightly different direction. One of the ways we can go or look at uh, is to look at random walks on graphs. So if we have a random walk on the graph, then he starts at a particular vertex and then chooses an edge at random to travel down uh, and ends up at the next time step at a different vertex. So for example, I mark a walk and might travel down that edge to there. At this point, he's only got one cho choice, so he has to come back. And then at this point, again, he has a choice of three directions to go. So he might, for example, go there. So he chooses these steps at random, and this gives us some information about what the structure of the graph looks like because uh, the ways these walks can actually travel across the graph are, of course, related to what the structure looks like. So at each time step, there's one step taken down one of the edges of the graph. So this is a discrete time walk. If we decrease the time steps and decrease the probability of moving from one, uh, from one vertex to the other of the network, then we can turn this discrete time random walk process into a diffusion or heat flow process. So physicists are very, similar, are very familiar with the idea of diffusion processes. We can characterize them by a different differential equation, solve the differential equation, and find out how the heat flows through space uh, at a particular time. So this kind of process describes uh, one of these continuous time random walks through a process of diffusion across a space. But of course, we're not working in a continuous space. We're working on a network. So we're really interested in how this heat flow or diffusion process uh, goes across a network. So on the network, we can identify this Laplacian operator here in this differential equation with the Laplacian matrix of the graph, L. So we simply replace the uh, Laplacian here with the Laplacian of the graph, and we end up with a differential equation that looks like this, which is a uh, matrix equation. So this matrix equation tells us how the heat will flow over time across the, the graph. 
from a particular starting uh, configuration. And then this differential equation is very simple to solve. Uh, so the distribution of heat at time t will just be h times p. And this h here, this is what we call the heat kernel uh, of the diffusion. And the heat kernel is solved as just the matrix exponential of this Laplacian matrix uh, times the time t. So this is a straightforward operation to, to calculate this matrix. It gives us the heat kernel depending on time t. And this tells us something about how heat will flow across the graph at a particular time. So we can do lots of interesting tricks with this to try and characterize the graph. So for example, we have this parameter t in here. So we can either set this parameter small, which means the heat doesn't have a lot of time to diffuse across the graph. And it tells us something very much about the local structure. Or if we set t to a large number, the heat will flow a uh, long distance across the graph and we can find out something about the long distance structure of the network. So from this heat kernel H here, this is another matrix. It suffers from exactly the same problem as the original matrix characterizations we have, uh, like the Laplacian, in that if we relabel the graph, the heat kernel will change in order as well in the same kind of way. But with the heat kernel, we can actually look at different types of characterizations. So for example, the trace of H, doesn't depend on how we label the vertices, and we can use that as a network characterization. That basically describes how heat is retained at the vertices of the graph at some time t. So we allow the heat to diffuse across the graph, and then we look at how much of that heat remains at the same place at some later time, and that tells us something about the structure of the graph, in particular how easy it is for heat to escape from that vertex. So the trace of the heat kernel is a useful characterization. It's actually uh, related to the eigenvalues of the original Laplacian matrix, which are lambda i here, uh, by this formula. So we just take the exponential of those uh, eigenvalues and add them up to get the trace of the heat kernel. It has some interesting properties. So this is one of the interesting properties we discovered for it. Here I have two different shapes of graphs. So here we have some simple cycles. And here we have what we call dumbbell graphs. So these are chosen because they're structurally they're very different from each other. So these have two dense regions connected by a, a, a very sparse connection, whereas these have loops in them. If you look at how this heat kernel trace changes over time, it turns out that these, uh, these two graphs have almost identical heat kernel traces, even though this has very different numbers of edges in it than this one. So these two have heat kernel traces that look like this. Whereas these two graphs here have heat kernel traces that look like that. So this is an interesting property in terms of describing the structure because it clearly separates things based on some structural consideration and not based on the numbers of edges or the density of those edges in the graph. So this is quite an interesting uh, type of representation of the graph if you're interested in different types of structures. So just to show you this is, this is practical, this is not all theoretical, uh, we have some experiments. So this is an example of the type of thing we're interested in. This is uh, what we call the COIL database. It has sets of different objects in them. Uh, we have four here. We've just picked out four from that set, but there's a lot more of them. Each of these objects has 72 different views at different locations around the object. So uh, the camera scans around the object at 72 different angles and captures images. So what we want to do with these objects is take one of those images and uh, work out which set it comes from, so which object it belongs to. So we do that by 
creating feature points on the objects and then creating a graph by triangulation in the image plane so we get a graph that represents each of these objects. So these examples of what the uh, heat kernel uh, trace looks like at different times for these different objects. So each of these lines uh, represents a different set of objects and each point along this x-axis is one of the 72 views of those objects. So if we select the correct time, for example this time, each of these different uh, objects is clearly separated by the shape of this heat kernel trace. So provided we know which time to set the heat kernel to, we can get good characterizations that separate the objects uh, very clearly from each other. Okay, so that was an example of using the uh, continuous time diffusion process on the graph. So now I'm going to go back to the idea of using discrete time random walks and paths on graphs to characterize them. So if we take a random walk across the graph uh, for t time steps, then clearly that's going to generate a path on the graph of t steps. So after time t, we'll have moved t units, and that will give us some kind of path on the graph. So if we take um, an ensemble of all those different paths, we can characterize a graph in some sense by the, how many of those different paths are, there are on the graph. So if we have a network where there are many different paths that connect to vertices to each other, then we know that's different by counting the numbers of those paths from a graph that doesn't have very many. So one example of that is this type of characterization. So if we take the adjacency matrix and we raise it to the power of k, each element of that will tell us how many different paths there are between those two vertices of length k. And so by this simple process, we can take powers of the adjacency matrix, add them up over all the vertices, and it tells us the total number of, lengths, uh, total number of paths of length k in the graph. And that gives us a characterization based on that those numbers of paths. So from that simple idea, we can characterize a network like this. So at these ends here, those are the numbers of walks of that particular length. So this is the number of walks of length three. And then we have these coefficients here, a1, a2, and a3. So these are coefficients we set. We make each, each successive coefficient smaller so that at some point down here, we can say these are too small to be of consequence and we can truncate the, the number of paths so we don't have to evaluate them all. So we have to choose these empirically in some way to make the comparison as good as possible. But the idea of this coefficient is to downweight the longer paths, so they're not so important. So this gives us essentially a vector of, of numbers which we can use to characterize the graph in some sense. So this type of characterization is effective, but it does have a problem, and that's called the problem of tottering. So the idea of tottering is that if we take a step like this, start a walk along the graph like this. At this point, there's no reason why the walk can't go backwards along that step, and then maybe it could go forwards again along the same step and then move off somewhere else. So because it's a random walk, uh, we consider all the paths, and paths like this, which go backwards and forwards between a pair of nodes, don't actually add any interesting information to the structure of the graph. So by going backwards and forwards along here, it's not telling us anything new about any different parts of the graph. It's just repeating the same edge, and we already know that edge is there in the graph. So this problem of going backwards and forwards uh, is something which doesn't help our characterization. In fact, it can swamp out um, interesting parts of the graph simply by the large numbers of these paths that go backwards and forwards. OK, so one of the ways that you can get around that turns out to be related to the idea of uh, prime numbers. It's 
partially related, it's not uh, closely related, but I thought I'd introduce it just to show you that there's a link between graphs and numbers in some sense. So most people are familiar with the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, which says that you can take any number and you can factorise it uniquely into a set of prime numbers. So it's the product of a unique uh, set of prime numbers. And from that comes this idea of the Riemann zeta function, which is quite famous mainly for the Riemann conjecture. Um, but this Riemann zeta function, which is based around powers of numbers, actually has a product form which looks like this. So it's the product of some, uh, some expressions that look like this. The interesting part about this product is over uh, prime numbers p. So this zeta function can be reduced into a form which is based on the product of some expressions over the prime numbers. So you might be wondering what that has to do with graphs, if anything. So what it has to do with graphs is based on the ideas um, that produced the Ahara zeta function. So the idea of the Ahara zeta function is that a network which has minimum degree two, so all vertices must have at least two edges coming into them, any uh, network of that property can be deco uh, decomposed into a set of prime cycles. So the idea of a prime cycle is a cycle in the graph, so it starts and ends at the same point, but it should have no backtracking and is not a multiple of another cycle. So for example, this is a prime cycle, so we go round a loop in a graph and end up at the same point. But this one here is not a prime cycle, so even though it's a cycle and we start and end at the same point, it has this backtracking step in it, so it's not a prime cycle. And this one here is also not a prime cycle because we go twice around the same loop, which is not allowed. Okay, so the idea of a prime cycle is that you can take a graph and you can decompose it, or a graph of this form with minimum degree two, and you can decompose it into a set of prime cycles. So in the same sense that you can decompose a number into primes, you can decompose a graph into these prime cycles. And that leads to the idea of the Ahara zeta function so this is another type of zeta function. Now it's a product over prime cycles in the graph. And it's 1 minus s, which is the parameter of the function. And lp here is the length of those prime cycles. So it's the product over all the prime cycles of some function of the, the length of those prime cycles. So it's got a similar flavor to the Riemann zeta function, uh, <coughs> though the connections perhaps aren't uh, that close. So the interesting thing about this zeta function is that it characterizes the graphs uh, purely based on prime cycles. And prime cycles disallow these backtracking steps, which we didn't want to have in our characterization of graphs because they don't give us any new information. But if we want to evaluate this, then we need to find all the prime cycles of the graph. And that's a difficult problem. So the question is, can we find a way to characterize graphs using this kind of idea, but without the problems, the complexities of computing all of these prime cycles? So it turns out there's another expression for this Ahara zeta function which is much more useful to us. So it looks like this. So it's just based on the determinant of a matrix. And this matrix here, this is identity matrix. And T here is another matrix which is directly derived from the network that we're interested in. So we can derive this, this uh, matrix T. It's another matrix representation, though slightly different to the ones I've showed you, directly from the graph. And then if we expand this determinant as a polynomial in U, then we can get an expression like this. And since this Ahara zeta function doesn't depend on how we label the graph, then these coefficients in this expression here also don't depend on how we label the graph. And therefore, we can use them to characterize uh, the graph in some sense. So we can compute these coefficients. 
and those coefficients gives us a characterization of the graph and it's a characterization that doesn't allow these backtracking steps because it's only based on the prime cycles in the graph. If you actually look at what these coefficients represent, they actually have some kind of structural meaning, or at least some of them do. So uh, this C3 over 2 minus C3 over 2 is the number of triangles in the graph. C4 over 2 is the, um, depend on the number of squares, and C5 the number of pentagons. So that looks like a very interesting structure. Unfortunately, it breaks down a bit after that. So C6 is the number of hexagons plus twice the number of pairs of edges, edge disjoint triangles, plus the number of pairs of triangles with a common edge. So although the small values here are directly related to common structural properties, the larger ones have less structural meaning. They have a, a structural meaning, but it's not um, easily interpretable. So although it's quite expensive to compute these directly from that determinant form, there are ways, other ways, which we can efficiently compute these in a reasonable time using some other mathematical tricks. So that's one example of how we can remove these backtracking steps which cause us problems. Uh, the problem with the, using the Hara-Zeta function is it's based on cycles. So if we have a part of a graph that doesn't have any cycles in it, then it can't characterise that part of the graph. So if, for example, we have a tree which has no cycles in it, then the Hara-Zeta function will give us nothing in terms of characterisation. It simply doesn't work for structures like that. So an alternative is to uh, use what we call a backtrackless walk. So the backtrackless walk is exactly the same idea as a normal random walk, except we disallow these backward steps. So we simply don't allow the walk to take a backward step to go back to where it came from in the previous step. So we can formulate it in a very similar way to a normal random walk, but instead of using the adjacency matrix, we have to use this matrix T, which comes from the ahara zeta function. So again, this is a matrix representation that's derived from the network, uh, but has a slightly more complicated form than, say, the adjacency or the Laplacian matrix. It's much more costly to compute than the standard random walk, but again, there are some tricks you can use to speed it up. So, for example, uh, in a recent paper, which is in press now, we showed ways of computing this, which makes it take no more time than the standard random walk. So we can use it as a graph characterization in exactly the same way as the normal random walk, but removing these backtracking steps. And if we do that, we use the same process. So we count the number of walks without the backtracking steps in of a particular length, and it gives us a sequence of numbers that characterize the graph uh, in a way that's invariant to the labeling. OK, so again, to prove that we're not just uh, creating these characterizations, not actually using them from something, I'll show you some results uh, that we get on actual uh, classification problems. So as well as the coil data I showed you before, we have another data set called MUTAG. The idea of this is to try and predict the properties of uh, chemical compounds. So it's a collection of 188 labelled chemical compounds. So these are labelled by uh, these high-throughput labs where the uh, compounds are tested against various biological targets. And then you can get uh, properties for them from that. So we have this set, and the idea is that we take one of these without the labelling information and then use the others in the set to try and predict uh, whether it has a particular property or not. So in this case, these compounds are labelled about whether they are mutagenic, so whether they cause changes in, in DNA. Um, so they're either labelled as uh, mutation-causing or non-mutation-causing. We're trying to predict which ones will cause mutations. OK, so these are the type of results we get. So the mutag data set 
So in this case where it's called labelled, that's where we're using the uh, properties of the, which atom is which to actually characterise the walks as well as just the, the standard random walk. So in that case we get 90% and 91% for the backtrackless walk. So using the backtrackless walk does have some benefits even though it's not a large difference in these data sets. So in the coil data set, again, the backtrackless walk gives us the best results, um, but all of these are quite similar. However, if you use just the shortest path on its own, it doesn't give you a very uh, good characterization of the graph. On this final set here, so we can see example here where the backtrackless walk does uh, pretty well. The Ahara coefficients don't do well on this set. So the reason for this is because these chemical structures, they have quite a lot of tree-like structure to them. So although there are loops in the chemical compounds, uh, benzene rings and so on, most of it is tree-like and therefore the Ahara coefficients, because they're based on cycles, can't really characterise uh, these graphs very well. Okay, I think I've got a few more minutes, so I'm just going to quickly do uh, one last thing, uh, and that's slightly related, but going back to the isomorphism problem I was talking about before. So some networks are interesting because they're very difficult to tell apart from each other. So here I've got some examples of networks like that. So these are uh, networks which have 16 vertices, I think. Every one of these uh, networks has... Uh, each vertex has six edges, so it's what's called a six regular graph. If you take every adjacent pair of vertices, so every, vert every pair of vertices with an edge between them, then they've always got two common neighbours. And if you take every non-adjacent pair of vertices, they also always have two common neighbours. So these are examples of what we call strongly regular graphs. They've got a very tightly constrained uh, structure to them, and that structure is very, very uniform. So it's very hard to tell them apart. And in fact, there's no known polynomial time algorithm to decide which of these graphs is which, even though they're actually different from each other and they're non-isomorphic. So the question is, if I give you these four graphs here, can you tell which ones of these are the same and which one of these is, is different? So I would defy anyone in the room to even have a go at, at that. You certainly can't do it by counting edges or, or uh, degrees or anything like that. So we could use ideas from random walks to try and distinguish these graphs from each other in some way. So we could explore this graph by taking a random warp of n steps and try and characterise them by some property of t to the power of n, if t is the transition matrix of the random walk. Another thing we can do is look at what we call the support of the random walk. So the support of the random walk is another graph or network, and you create it by joining vertices when there's a path between them in the random walk of a certain length. So if we consider the random walk of n steps, then the support of Tn would be all of the uh, vertices in the graph that have a path of length n between them. So the reason why we create this graph is we can then look at the spectrum of that graph to try and characterise these graphs and tell whether they're different from each other. Unfortunately, this doesn't work. So we proved in a paper in 2009 that you can't distinguish strongly regular graphs using any length walk if you look at the support of the spectrum of the support um, of the random walk. So using a random walk doesn't seem like a very useful way to try and uh, characterise these graphs because they're so structurally similar to each other. So that's where we appeal to, to quantum walks. So a quantum walk is different from a normal classical random walk in a number of ways. So the transition matrix you get is unitary 
and that means that the walk is reversible, so I can either go forwards in time or backwards in time, uh, depending on whether I use the unitary matrix or its uh, conjugate. It can be in a superposition, superposition of states, which means it can be at a superposition of different vertices at the same time, and we give the water, walker an amplitude, positive or negative, so these walks are always real in the setting that we use them, um, for being at each vertex, and the probability of being that vertex is, of course, the square of that amplitude. So because it's a quantum walk, that means that different paths, instead of just adding up, they can interfere and cancel out with each other. So this is interesting because uh, a number of different studies of these quantum walks have shown that they have different computational properties to classical walks. In particular, in some cases, you can show that a quantum walker can move more quickly through certain graphs than a classical walker and can reach the other side uh, exponentially quicker than a classical walker. So because this walk is reversible, that means that um, the step must depend on where you've come from as well as where you end up because you need to know where you've come from so you could reverse the process and go backwards in time. So in fact, it turns out the walk's on edges rather than vertices. So if we start our walker there, then he can end up in a superposition of the different edges at the next time step. Okay, so we give the walk positive and negative amplitudes, and then once we've done that, we can look at the positive support of the walk. So these, this is all the pairs of vertices which we can pass between at a certain time, but with a positive amplitude now. So if the, if the amplitude is negative, then we discount that as a path. And the reason why we do that is because we can look at the interference patterns in the graph rather than just whether or not they're connected with each other. So we call this the positive support, and U is the uh, unitary matrix describing the walk. So positive support of U to the N is what's connected in a positive sense after N steps of the quantum walk. So if you look at these, then you find out the positive support of U can't distinguish these strongly regular graphs. And the positive support of u squared also can't distinguish these strongly regular graphs. So they always have the same spectrum. Uh, those graphs have the same spectrum uh, after one or two steps. But if you go to three steps, then you find that all of the strongly regular graphs that are available to us anyway can always be distinguished by the spectrum of that graph. And that means more than, well, we test it on more than 33,000 uh, graphs. So 33,000 squared pairs of graphs are always distinguished by their spectra if you look at the cube of the quantum walk and its positive support. So the reason why we seem to need to look at the cube is because that's the first time at which the walker can go around uh, a loop in the graph and return back to the same place. So it can interfere with itself at that point. Before that, he can never return to the same place in the graph again because the backward step is different to the forward step. Okay, so just to prove that's true to you. So these three graphs here all have the same spectrum, and therefore they're the same graph, even though I've labeled the verses in a different order. This one here has a different spectra. So this is a, from the same family of strongly regular graphs, but it's non-isomorphic to the other three. The other three are all the same as each other. Okay, so back to my conclusions. So just to summarize, uh, there are many different ways to characterize graphs, so I've just shown you several of them based some on spectral theory and some on ideas from random walks. They both provide very useful methods which actually work in practice on large data sets of graphs and can characterize them quite well. 
It's still very challenging to use these methods on some of the larger data sets I mentioned at the start. So on large real-world networks, for example, computing things like the powers of the uh, random walk or the spectrum can be very challenging because of the large size of the data sets. And that's all. Thank you.